Hello and welcome to episode 87 of Pay-Per-View, in which I review newspaper articles and headlines and place events and headlines in a true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is the Russia-Ukraine conflict. This is in the Daily Mail. Zelensky insists missile that hit Poland was Russian, despite NATO, US and even Polish presidents saying it was a Ukrainian air defence misfire, but all agree Putin to blame for nearly sparking World War Three. Volodymyr Zelensky has insisted the fatal explosions that killed two in Poland close to his nation's border were caused by a Russian missile, despite several world leaders suggesting it was unlikely, it was likely of Ukrainian origin. The Ukrainian president was quoted by Interfax Ukraine news agency as saying on Wednesday he had no doubt that an explosion that killed two people in Poland was not caused by a Ukrainian missile. I have no doubt that it was not our missile, he said, adding that he believed the explosion was caused by Russian missile and that he had based his conclusions on reports from Ukraine's military, which he cannot but trust. Zelensky also confirmed Kiev had received no offer from Moscow to start peace talks, despite concerns of an escalation in the war following the incident. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that Ukraine was not interested in holding peace talks with Russia, but Zelensky declared the Russians do not communicate with us. Poland, meanwhile, installed barbed wire along its border with Russia after the deadly incident. Soldiers were seen laying down the razor wire near Szyliny village near the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad. The eight-foot-high and ten-foot-wide defences are being put up amid sworn tensions between the two countries to prevent illegal crossings into Poland. There were fears that Russia could deliberately flood Poland with an influx of migrants to wreak havoc in the EU. NATO member states are also discussing bolstering the air defences in the east, with Slovakia demanding additional systems from alliance partners to safeguard even more the security of Slovak citizens, their defence minister said. NATO member states are also discussing bolstering their defences, their air defences in the east, with Slovakia demanding additional systems from alliance partners to safeguard even more the security of Slovak citizens, their defence minister said. Lithuania has also called for more defence along the Polish-Ukrainian border, and all the rest of NATO's eastern flank with President Gitanas Norseda saying NATO sky must be 100% defended. Concerns that the war would escalate were raised dramatically with the missile that was fired into Poland, killing two farmers. Warsaw initially claimed it came from Russia, which could have seen NATO invoking Article 5, in which an attack on one country is considered an attack on all of them, sparking a collective defence effort. Now leaders have said it was probably launched by Ukrainian air defence, easing fears that the strike could drag NATO into direct conflict with Russia, but giving Vladimir Putin an excuse to lash out the West. Kremlin has now summoned the Polish ambassador to Moscow to the foreign ministry to explain that absolutely hysterical reaction. Polish President Andrzej Duda, speaking after a meeting of his Security Council, said he has seen no evidence the missile was fired by Russia and it was in fact highly probable the Soviet-era S-300 rocket came from Ukraine. There was no indication that Poland was deliberately targeted, he added. Ukraine's defence was launching their missiles in various directions and it is highly probable that one of these missiles unfortunately fell on Polish territory, according to Duda, who added that Russia bears ultimate responsibility for the strike because Putin began the war in Ukraine. Jens Stoltenberg, head of NATO, backed that analysis, saying the strike was likely, uh, that's not a surprise, saying the strike was likely a Ukrainian missile. There was no indication it was deliberate, and there is no indication Russia is preparing an attack on NATO. However, he added, this is not Ukraine's fault. Russia bears ultimate responsibility as it continues its legal war against Ukraine. Ludovine de Donder, the Belgian defence minister, said preliminary investigations by security forces indicate the same thing, adding to reports that emerged in the early hours suggesting Biden also told NATO leaders the rocket was from Ukraine.
Hours after the incident, Vladimir Zelensky had blamed it on Russian missile terror in Kiev is yet to concede the same missile was involved. Alexei Danilov, Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, said Kiev wanted access to the site and still saw a Russian trace behind the attack. The news came after a nervous night in which it looked like NATO and Russia could be heading for a direct confrontation with a risk triggering World War III and that underlines the risk that a single mistake or miscalculation in Ukraine could yet spark such a conflict. Matthias Morawiecki, Polish Prime Minister, said it may no longer be necessary to trigger NATO Article 4 which calls for discussions among allies over a threat, but the allies will strengthen their defences in the region. However, that will come as small comfort to the families of the two men killed, who were identified by Polish media as a tractor driver called Bogdan C. and a warehouse foreman called Bogoslav W., both aged in their 60s. Locals said the pair were working to offload grain at a drying facility when the missile hit, killing them instantly. The blast happened around 900 feet from a housing compound where around 500 people live. If the missile had struck it, casualties would have been much higher. Horrified residents reported hearing strange whistles as the missile flew overhead and then a massive explosion about a thousand decibels. Neighbours say that Bogoslav, who had worked in the grain silent warehouse for 40 years, lived with his wife and elderly mother-in-law, who they both looked after. He is reported to have, to have two grown-up children who live in Krakow. Bogdan C., who worked as a driver for the plant, lived in the nearby village of Setniki, uh, or Saint Setniki. A neighbor told local media, we all know each other, it's not a big town, we have never experienced such a tragedy, they were good people. Another told news portal, interior.pl, Bogoslav went to work as usual, and at around 4pm his wife realized that something bad had happened. Some of the neighbors, out of compassion and curiosity, wanted to visit his wife, but she was in a frenzy, she did not want to talk, she looked into the distance and cried, she was in terrible shock. Zelensky, the article continues, addressing the G20 for a second time Wednesday, said the strike on Poland was a true statement brought by Russia of the G20 summit. There was a terrorist state among you and we are defending ourselves against it. That is the reality, he added, though Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov had already departed to the conference late Tuesday. Sunak, speaking as the, this is the new British Prime Minister, speaking at the G20, broke up the joint statement condemning Russian aggression in Ukraine, said allies are still working to establish the facts of what happened in Poland. He added, the persistent threat to our security and global asphyxiation has been driven by the actions of the one man willing to be unwilling to be at the summit, Vladimir Putin. There is not a single person in the world who has not felt the impact of Putin's war. What we agreed this morning is that it is important to establish the facts, and this is exactly what is happening as we speak. We will get to the bottom of what happened. The strike was happening at a time when the G20 was gathered trying to find resolution to some of the world's challenges. I think it shows utter contempt for the international rules-based system. The article continues, the dramatic development came on another day of bloodshed and destruction in Ukraine with more than 100 Russian missiles landing in major population centres, killing three and cutting the power supply to millions. Zelensky spoke by phone Tuesday with Polish counterpart Duda offering his condolences following reports of the alleged Russian missile strike on Polish soil. Express condolences over the death of Polish citizens and Russian missile terror. We exchange available information that are clarifying all the facts. Ukraine, Poland, and all of Europe and the world must be fully protected from terrorist Russia, Zelensky said in a tweet. Stoltenberg said on Twitter, spoke with President Duda about the explosion in Poland. I offered my condolences for the loss of life. NATO is monitoring the situation and allies are closely consulting. Important that all facts are established. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, meanwhile, declared alarmed by reports of an explosion in Poland following a massive Russian missile strike on Ukrainian cities. I extend my condolences and my strongest message of support and solidarity with Poland and our Ukrainian friends, adding she was in close contact with Polish security officials. 
Sunak in a tweet said Britain will support allies as they establish what happened. We are also coordinating with our international partners, including NATO, Sunak said. Allies. You often hear this, we're standing closely with our allies. What does that mean? Enemies at any point in time are those the cult wants to demonise. Allies at any point in time are those also working to demonise and attack or invade the enemies that the cult wants to be invaded and attacked. That's it. That's simple. French President Emmanuel Macron said the consequences of this conflict go beyond European borders. Latvian Deputy Prime Minister Vitus Pabriks tweeted, My condolences to our Polish brothers in arms, criminal Russian regime fired missiles which target not only Ukrainian civilians but also landed on NATO territory. Estonia's Ministry for Foreign Affairs added Estonia is ready to defend every inch of NATO territory. And UK defence commentator Rear Admiral Chris Parry said it was time to station advanced anti-air systems on NATO's borders and intercept anything that looks like it would cross those borders. Russia on Tuesday unleashed one of its largest missile barrages to date in Ukraine, leaving the country's energy network critical with rolling blackouts. More than 100 rockets were fired at cities across the country, hitting civilian buildings and power stations, the Ukrainian Air Force said. Tuesday's bombardment left half of Kiev, where at least one civilian died in the whole city of Zhytomyr without power. Zhytomyr Strikes are also reported in the western city of Lviv, the closest large urban settlement to the Polish border, and caused partial blackouts. Kharkiv, Venetia, Rivni, Odessa, Zaporizhia. Some of these names are going to say it wrong. Chernihiv, Kamenlinsky, and Ivano Frankivsk were also targeted. The bombardment came as German newspaper Der Spiegel reported the documents leaked from the German military. Said one of the country's top generals, Eberhard Zorn ordered the country's army to put itself on a war footing in the face of its existential threats. The 68-page policy paper was produced in September, according to Der Spiegel. In it, Zorn called for the complete overhaul of the German military and told commanders to prepare themselves for war. Attacks on Germany can potentially occur without warning, and with the great, possibly even existential damage he wrote. Attacks on Ukraine came just hours after the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, speaking via video link from Kiev, told world leaders of the G20 Valley Summit that he is ready to end the war provided Russia withdraws its troops from areas it currently occupies. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, speaking later at the summit in Indonesia, accused the West of waging hybrid war in Ukraine and Kiev of prolonging the conflict without mentioning Russia's own involvement in the fighting. There was an attack on the capital according to preliminary information. Two residential buildings were hit in the Pachesk district, Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said. Several missiles were shot down over Kiev by air defence systems. Medics and rescuers are at the scene of the strikes. Moments later, he added another hit in the Pachesk district multi-storey building. Andrei Yermak, head of Zelensky's staff, said the attack was a response to the president addressing the G20 zap, ramping up pressure on Russia to stop its attacks. Does anyone seriously think that the Kremlin really wants peace? It wants obedience. But at the end of the day, terrorists always lose, Yermak said. Russian forces have recently been targeting energy infrastructure across Ukraine and has launched barrages and missiles and swarms of drones. Around a third of Ukraine's power generating capacity has been taken out, causing rolling blackouts across the country just as winter hits. Kiev was last targeted by Russian forces nearly one month ago on October 17th. Russian faced mounting diplomatic pressure to end its war in Ukraine as G20 allies and critics alike rue the painful global impact of nearly nine months of conflict. A draft communique obtained by AFP showed the world's 20 leading economies coming together to condemn the war's effects but still divided on apportioning blame. The summit has shown that even Russia's allies have limited patience with the conflict that has inflated food and energy prices worldwide and raised the spectre of nuclear war. 
risking diplomatic isolation. Russia was forced to agree to the war in Ukraine, which Moscow refuses to call a war, has adversely impacted the global economy. Uh, and there's another uh, section here. What are NATO Articles 4 and 5, and what does it mean if they are implemented? If any NATO member, in this case Poland, feels their territory, political independence or security is under threat, they can request a NATO meeting under Article 4. This is a call for consultations among allies in the face of security threat, allowing for more time to determine what steps to take. At this stage of the process, the allies are able to exchange views and information and discuss issues prior to reaching an agreement and taking action. Within hours of the blast in Poland on Tuesday night, two European diplomats said Warsaw requested a NATO meeting under Article 4 for consultations. This has not been officially triggered yet, but Poland are likely to call for a NATO meeting to discuss the threat as a result of the missile strike. Article 4 of the NATO treaty is seen as a starting point for major NATO operations as it can lead to members triggering Article 5. Article 5, the cornerstone of the founding treaty of NATO, which was created in 1949, the US military as its powerful mainstay essentially to counter the Soviet Union and its Eastern Bloc satellites during the Cold War. The Charter stipulates that NATO members agree that an armed attack against one or more of them shall be considered an attack against them all. If such an attack does occur, each NATO member will assist the country that has been attacked any action it deems necessary. This can include the use of armed force with the aim of restoring and maintaining the security of the North Atlantic area. If Poland does trigger Article 4 of the NATO treaty and call a meeting to discuss the security threat, the alliance could decide to trigger Article 5. What this could mean depends on what action the alliance decide to take as the charges stipulates that members can take any action it deems necessary. This can include the use of armed force, but this must be decided by the alliance. Invoking Article 5 is not automatic because NATO members must agree on what action they want to take. There is no time limit on how long the consultations under Article 4 can take, and experts say the language is flexible enough to allow each member to decide how far to go to respond to armed aggression against another. But it's very clear that Zelensky, like the West in general, want a third world war. The alternative media on the internet, and even before the internet, and the, I mean the internet was around, but it wasn't what it is today, it was still the very early days of the internet. 1990s, through books and other means, have been pointing out that the plan was for a third world war, pitching the West against Russia and China to justify a global dictatorship. World wars allow for enormous transformation of national and global society. After the Second World War, for example, we had the creation of Israel, which is a fundamental country in the global control structure. We had the creation of the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund. Nothing changes society like a war. Nobody in Ukraine or the West is making any effort to start peace talks. Zelensky doesn't want peace talks. This is an article in... Politico, which is an American-German newspaper. Zelensky rejects Russia's desire for short truce in a Halifax address. President Volodymyr Zelensky said that Russia was seeking a short truce with Ukraine, a proposal he fiercely rejected because it would simply allow Moscow's forces to regroup. His comments delivered in a pre-recorded video to kick off the 2022 Halifax International Security Forum showed a leader unwilling to pause the fighting and uninterested in preliminary peace talks. Why? Because he's just a mouthpiece for the West. Russia is now looking for a short truce, a respite to regain strength, he said. Someone may call this the war's end, but such a respite will only worsen the situation. Immoral compromises will only lead to new blood, he continued. Zelensky has morals now, apparently. Zelensky added that an honest peace can only be achieved by the complete demolition 
of Russian aggression. The article continues, it's unclear how formally Russia made the truce proposal or if Moscow made it at all. Zelensky has made similar remarks before, claiming that any effort to stop the fighting would benefit Russia more than Ukraine. Ukrainian troops currently have the momentum in the war, having recently forced Russian forces to withdraw from the southern city of Kherson. But the context of Zelensky's comments were different this time around, as US officials nudged their Ukrainian counterparts to de-escalate tensions and consider actions that could lead to a peaceful resolution of the conflict. His message to officials and experts of the world's democracies, many of whom support Ukraine, was unmistakable. There can be no peace on Russia's terms. Zelensky's remarks were more direct and pointed, indicating that Moscow may have made a direct appeal to Kiev as pressure to find a peaceful end to the war mounts. General Mark Milley, the Joint Chiefs Chair, has twice said a winter slowdown in fighting could provide a diplomatic opening. Spokespeople for the National Security Council and the State Department did not immediately offer comment. The Russian embassy in Washington also did not immediately respond to an email request for information. Still, Zelensky's defiant address set the tone for the conference in Halifax, a major annual gathering that brings together key officials from democratic nations and activists seeking a democratic future for their countries. The gathering this year is focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its aftermath with conference documents and paraphernalia adorned in Ukraine's national colours of yellow and blue. Oh, so it's unbiased then. Russia will find no sympathy here as Western and current and former Ukrainian officials will discuss in public and in private how best to aid Kiev in its moment of need. These conversations will now be impacted by Zelensky's clarion call for continued resistance to Russia, even if Moscow wants a break. Peace is possible, Zelensky said, but for it to exist, we must make impossible Russian aggression in all of its elements. Let it happen. Let there be peace. Well, if you let there be peace, there will be. Zelensky. Ukraine will also find strong backing from a bipartisan group of lawmakers in Halifax. Senator Jian Shaheen, one of the leaders of the, de of the delegation, underscored that there continues to be very strong bipartisan support for, su for support for Ukraine or Capitol Hill. We share the same sentiment that this war is about a lot more than whether Ukraine is able to maintain their territorial integrity, Shaheen said on a panel after Zelensky's remarks. Well, it's one thing to talk about territorial integrity. Putin's position on the current situation is that he doesn't want NATO on the border of Russia. So he feels Russia's territorial integrity in terms of encroachment by NATO is being threatened. Where's the talk about that? I've talked in the last couple of episodes about motivation for the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the true motivation. It's about kicking off a third world war and targeting the economy, energy supply and therefore supply chain of the West. And we are seeing that happen now. It's a war on the West. It's the Western governments destroying Western countries under the guise of fighting Russia. Because governments don't represent people of their country, they represent the cult's agenda. Because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And the next subject this week is electric cars. This is in the Daily Mail. Another vehicle of control. There's a dark side to the rise of electric cars that could rob us of the freedom and pleasure of driving forever, writes Sam Duncan. 
Even if they were not part of the global net zero accounting trick where cars magically become green, even though they are powered by coal via a battery instead of by petrol or diesel. Even if their batteries were not toxic, dangerously heavy, prone to early expiry and built with rare earth metals, using slave and or child labour at a horrendous environmental cost. Even if they were not noiseless, soulless, polarite moving computers to go instead of I still wouldn't buy an electric car right now. Driving is one of our last pure freedoms, but this simple pleasure is in the firing line, not only from climate crusaders, but also from tyrannical health and safety-obsessed road toll reducers who want ever more control over our vehicles and how we use them. New Zealand already has a ridiculously utopian road to zero campaign which aims to completely eradicate deaths and serious injuries from crashes. This is the same country that found no freedom too sacred not to sacrifice on the altar of COVID zero and safety obsessed bureaucrats behind both unrealistic schemes. Well, we already have COVID zero because there is no COVID virus, as I've pointed out many times before in this podcast, and I go into great detail in the new book. In China now, the population is subject to a nightmare fascist tyranny to achieve zero COVID when there already is zero COVID. Anyway, the article continues. Just as there was no price too high for preventing even a single COVID death, the nanny state will never stop eroding our driving freedoms as long as they can say they are saving lives. You know, this phrase nanny state, the definition of nanny state is a government or its policies are overprotective or interfering unduly with personal choice. The term likens such a government to the role that a nanny has in child-rearing. The thing is, the encroachment on freedom is not about overprotection, but tyranny and control. It's not a nanny state, it's a fascist state, is what it is. The article continues, And electric vehicles give the virtue-signalling paternalists the perfect mechanism for protecting us from ourselves. That's not why it's done, but that's what the article says. Computer cars that can be controlled or even switched off remotely. Online data collection and the pandemic have shown us that we are more than happy to exchange freedoms for convenience and safety. As I've pointed out before, convenience does not equal freedom. It's the path to tyranny. Uh, And the article uh, continues, and it's a very short step from self-driving electric cars that obey you to those that obey the government instead, for your own good of course. In July, BMW owners were shocked to be told that previously included features like heated seats would now be unavailable unless a monthly subscription was paid. But as always, surprise gave way to resignation and we can expect this to become standard industry practice with Mercedes bringing in a similar plan. The German carmaker would charge $1,200 yearly acceleration increase fee to maximise horsepower and torque for its EQ series of electric vehicles in the US and Canada. Modern vehicles already have speed limit detectors. How long before the government orders car companies to prevent drivers from speeding? What's wrong with that, you might think? We would reduce road deaths and it could even make driving easier and say goodbye to speeding fines. The problem is it will not stop there and speed limits will be reduced again and again until our cars rarely go over 30 and there's nothing we can do about it. Car haters in Australia have already reduced speeds to crawl with stunned drivers copping fines for going a few kilometres over the 30 kilometre an hour limit in Liverpool in Sydney South West, where transport for New South Wales is running trial. 
despite the objections of local residents. And when it's decided that driving long distances is contributing too much to climate change, your car will simply prevent you from driving any further than a certain number of kilometres from your home. After all, what gives you the right to tow a caravan on an interstate camping trip when you could be staying home and helping save the planet? Car-free days will no longer be optional. Your computer-controlled vehicle will simply refuse to start. The government will have absolute power over where you drive, how fast you go, and where you can park. And now that's the real reason for electric cars and their stepping stone to driverless cars. Licenses, registration, driving history, all will be digitized, tied to your vehicle and used to stop you from traveling where you want to go when. Dangerous old-fashioned dumb cars will be banned as soon as it's realistic to do so. And buyback or trade-in schemes introduced funded by our own taxes. Driving for fun will be a distant memory, as will the road trip, the joy of flying down an empty country road and the feeling of exploring a beautiful land by car. If we're lucky, the safety czars might allow us to drive the old way at places like Eastern Creek at exorbitant prices, but it's hard to see how they would justify the emissions. Not to mention that electric cars are far beyond the average person's technical ability to maintain or fix. No more tinkering with the engine on the weekend or teaching your children how to change a tyre or check the engine oil. Bye-bye to your local mechanic and hello to being at the mercy of the multinational car giants when anything goes wrong with your car or its operating system. Many of us will simply give up and turn to dehumanising public transport instead because what will be the point of owning a car if it all but owns you? I've said before in this podcast that the agenda is that public transport is the only means of transport in the end and those who refuse to live their lives by the fine detail dictates of authority will not be allowed to travel. The article continues. The only way to prevent this impending death of driving is to make sure that cars remain beyond government control. For once we reach a tipping point where a critical mass own them in their current form, there will be no going back. Australians must not just blindly accept the rise of electric cars and assume it brings only good. We must continue to question and stay vigilant about the unintended consequences of transitioning away from petrol and diesel power. I, for one, the the, uh, writer says, am in no rush to jump on the bandwagon. And there's another article here. This is on the Fox News Business website. World Economic Forum calls to reduce private vehicles by eliminating ownership. Now, because the World Economic Forum is just a vehicle for the cult, fronted up by a cult frontman, Klaus Schwab, then what that headline is really saying is the cult calls to reduce private vehicles by eliminating ownership. The World Economic Forum is looking to reduce global reliance on critical metals as nations look to make the transition to renewable energy supplies and one proposal is reducing ownership of private vehicles. This transition from fossil fuels to renewables will need large supplies of critical metals such as cobalt, lithium, nickel to name a few. The forum said in a report earlier this month, shortages of these critical minerals could raise the cost of clean energy technologies. The international lobbying organization based in Switzerland has proposed three solutions for lowering the costs of critical metals used in everything from cell phones and electric vehicles to wind turbines and efficient lighting. Wind turbines, you know, there's this talk about stopping oil and, 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 you know, renewable energy supplies and wind turbines and solar power, two of the power sources that are being suggested when neither of them will provide anything near the energy necessary to run society as it currently runs. Anyway, the article continues. 
the forum noted, World Economic Forum, noted that even with recycling initiatives in place, mineral mining is expected to increase by 500% by 2050. More sharing can reduce ownership of idle equipment and thus material usage, the group argued, pointing to statistics that show the average vehicle in England is driven just 4% of the time. Vehicle sharing initiatives like Get Around and Blue SG have become increasingly popular around the world and are key in reducing the number of cars and electronics needed globally, the World Economic Forum argued. Though it did not address how car sharing could be more effectively utilised in a nation like the US, where cars are heavily relied on and public transportation is lacking in both rural and urban communities. The report also pointed out that most people around the world already have personal phones or computers, but 39% of global workers also provided laptops and mobile phones. This is not at all resource efficient, the report said. Keeping a smartphone for five years instead of three reduces the phone's annual carbon footprint by 31%. The report said companies needed to be incentivized to reward consumer longevity and encourage product repurposing to prevent new mines from being opened. And there's another article here. This is on msn.com, republishing of an article from Birmingham Mail. Smart motorways branded Grenfell of the roads as figures show major crashes are twice as likely. This is where driverless cars are going. Smart motorways is all part of that same agenda. Bereaved families have accused the government of murder over smart motorways because they want to make everything smart. They want to create a technological sub-reality uh, which the human mind will be connected to, which will be run by artificial intelligence. And I talk about the true nature of that artificial intelligence in the new book. So the article says, Bereaved families have accused the government of murder over smart motorways as it, as it is revealed that danger lanes have claimed 79 lives. Serious injuries and deaths involving stationary vehicles are twice as likely on roads which don't use hard shoulders, with one crash survivors saying the roads were weaponizing lorries. Campaigning widow Claire Mercer said, This is the Grenfell of the roads. We've already passed the number that died in that tragedy. Some 72 people were killed in the 2017 tower blaze in northwest London. The mirror's analysis of figures from National Highway suggests that between 2015 and 2016, 28% of injuries and 16% of fatalities were on smart sections, yet they formed just 10% of the network at the moment. 19 deaths were on dynamic hard shoulder motorways where the lane was put in and out of use depending on traffic flow. There have been 28 confirmed deaths on all lane running smart motorways where the hard shoulder is always in use. Further, 31 died on controlled smart motorways, those with a hard shoulder but variable speed limits. Sally Jacobs, 85, from Edgware, northwest London, lost her husband Derek, 83, when his car broke down on a section of the M1 without a hard shoulder near Sheffield. Uh, she said, if there was a hard shoulder, he'd be alive today. It's not manslaughter, it's murder. They know exactly what they're doing. The man I loved for its 66 years went out in the morning, said cheerio, and never came back. The article continues. Meanwhile, the Sunday Mirror has uncovered the 79th victim, Andrew Steer, a 53-year-old delivery driver who died in January near Junction 25 of the M1 when his van hit a stationary lorry on a stretch with no, with no hard shoulder near Nottingham. Widow Wendy, 57, joined Claire Mercer's call for action, declaring, These lives just don't matter to those behind these roads. It's heart-wrenching. I don't think my husband would have died if there had been a hard shoulder. It upsets me so deeply his death could have been avoided. It's been all about money, not about people. On one level, it's about money. But as I keep pointing out, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. 
The article continues, the rails use electronic signals to manage traffic and in some cases turn the hard shoulder into a usable live lane. This can help traffic flow, but it also leaves motorists with nowhere to stop in the case of a sudden fault or emergency. According to a National Highways report, smart motorways improve traffic flow and are safer across all lanes, but their own figures show serious injuries and deaths involving stationary vehicles are twice as likely. Campaigner Claire, 45, from Rotherham, South Yorkshire, founded lobby group Smart Motorways Kill after husband Jason 44 and Alexandre Morganau 22 died near Sheffield when a lorry hit their stationary vehicles on a stretch in the M1 without a hard shoulder in June 2019. Claire said it's horrible knowing there are other people that are still getting that knock on the door. It destroys your life. It's so heartbreaking. She has called for a government U-turn and fears big money contracts are at the centre of the problem. She added their procrastination is killing people. They don't want to give in on this purely because of pressure from the big contractors that built these roads. Everyone is ignoring that human lives are being taken and wrecked. She continued, how many more are going to die before we win? We only want one thing and it only takes two minutes. Switch the lane off and you've got your hard shoulder back. They're going to wait until some big dramatic crash. Next, God forbid, it will be a bus of children or elderly on a trip to the seaside. Then they'll all point the finger at each other. See, if you don't understand that there's an agenda, the only explanation you can come up with is money. The article continues. A BBC panorama probe found near misses on one stretch of the M25 rocketed from 72 in the five years before it became a smart motorway to 1,485 in the five years afterwards. Tattooist Jack Gallowtree, 34 from Wolverhampton, is battling constant pain after a terrifying crash on the M6 southbound from Manchester in April 2021. He said, I don't think of it as a lucky escape. I should not have been put in that situation in the first place. A sudden fault on his motorcycle forced Jack to pull to the left to stop, but two lorries were heading towards him in the left lane that would otherwise have been a hard shoulder. As Jack attempted to pull out of the way, his machine slid. He explained, my front tyre slipped off the one foot of tarmac I had left onto the dirt. The bike went haywire and smashed me into the barrier. If you remove the hard shoulders, the lorries are still going to have to be in the left lane. It's weaponizing lorries, the most lethal form of vehicle. Anyone with half a brain can see these roads are far more lethal by taking away a consistent lifeline. The article continues. In 2020, the government announced a pause on new smart motorways pending a safety review, but families say this is not enough. Teacher Salma Akhtar, 41, from Sheffield, lost mum Nargis Begum, 62, when their Nissan Qashqai was hit on a section of the M1 without a hard shoulder in September 2018. Simon said their own figures show the roads are not fit for purpose. National Highways disputed some of the analysis and stressed deaths involving stationary vehicles are a small portion of motorway fatalities. Chief Executive Nick Harris said data shows that overall in terms of serious or fatal casualties, smart motorways are our safest roads. We are continuing work to make them our safest roads in every way. As ever, the agenda takes precedence and what happens to people is irrelevant. The agenda is to control everything fundamental about human life, and travel, obviously, is an everyday fundamental part of human life, and so if you're going to control people, you need to control travel, and that's what smart motorways and driverless cars and electric cars are all about. And the next subject this week is ancient history. This is in The Guardian. 
Lost City of Atlantis rises again to fuel a dangerous myth. For a story that was first told 2,300 years ago, the myth of Atlantis has demonstrated a remarkable persistence over the millennia. Originally outlined by Plato, the tale of the rise of a great ancient civilization followed by its cataclysmic destruction has since generated myriad interpretations. Many versions have been intriguing and entertaining, but none have been as controversial as its most recent outing in the Netflix series Ancient Apocalypse. Presented by the author Graham Hancock, the program argues that a once sophisticated culture was destroyed by floods triggered by a giant comet which crashed on Earth, a disaster that inspired the legend of Atlantis and is claimed. According to Hancock, survivors of the calamity spread around the world, which was then populated by simple hunter-gatherers, bringing them science, technology, agriculture and monumental architecture. We owe everything to these near-godlike individuals, it is claimed. For good measure, Hancock, who has been promoting these ideas in his books for decades, argues that archaeologists have deliberately covered up this catastrophic vision of civilization spread and accuses mainstream academia of its extremely defensive, arrogant and patronizing attitudes. These stark claims have helped the series reach the top of viewing lists on both sides of the Atlantic, to the chagrin of archaeologists who, for their part, have denounced ancient apocalypse on the grounds that it provides little evidence to support its grandiose claims and for promoting conspiracy theories dressed up as science. Flint Dibble, an archaeologist at Cardiff University, described Hancock's basic thesis as flawed thinking. Archaeologists don't hate him as he claims it is simply that we strongly believe he is wrong, says Dibble in an article in the conversation. The confrontation is intriguing and raises many issues of which the most basic is the simple question, why has the story of Atlantis compared with other ancient myths? Maintain its popularity for so long, what is the essential attraction of the tale? For actors, we only have to look at the works of Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, H.P. Lovecraft, Conan Doyle, Brecht, and a host of science fiction writers who have all found the myth an irresistible inspiration. As to the suggested location of this lost civilization, these have ranged from the Sahara to the Antarctic and countless places in between. Nor is Hancock the first to suggest the destruction of a once great civilization led to the flowering of culture elsewhere. In 1882, the maverick U.S. congressman and popular writer Ignatius Donnelly published Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, which argued that a highly complex, sophisticated culture had been wiped out by a flood 10,000 years ago and claimed that its survivors had spread around the world, teaching the rest of humanity the secrets of farming and architecture. Sounds familiar. Then there were the Nazis. Many swore by the idea that a white Nordic superior race, people of the purest blood, had come from Atlantis. As a result, Himmler set up an SS unit, the Anenobi, or Bureau of Ancestral Heritage, in 1935 to find out where people from Atlantis had ended up after the deluge had destroyed their homeland. And that, in part, explains why the myth of an ancient, lost civilization is so useful. It is a basic tale of a rise and fall that can be crowded and exploited for all sorts of causes. Plato meant his tale to be an allegory. Atlantis was destroyed by the gods who had grown angry with the hubris displayed by its inhabitants and so destroyed it. Don't get too big for your boots, in other words. But Hancock, who describes himself as a journalist, presumably to, presumably to avoid being called a pseudo-scientist, takes the story to a new controversial level in suggesting that survivors of such a deluge were the instigators of the great works of other civilizations from Egypt, Mexico and Turkey to Indonesia. As Dibble states, such claims reinforced white supremacist ideas. They strip indigenous people of their rich heritage and instead give credit to aliens or white people. In short, the series promotes the idea of race sites that are outdated, long, outdated and long since debunked. As to the likely site of the origin of Atlantis, the serious money goes on the destruction of the, destruction of the Greek island of Santorini, 
and its impact on Crete and puts the blame on volcanic eruptions, not errant comets, as Hancock argues. In addition, while ancient apocalypse suggests that destruction happened 12,000 years ago, most proponents of the alternative view believe it occurred around 1630 BC when the island of Santorini exploded in one of the most violent volcanic events in human history. 14 cubic miles of rock were hurled into the atmosphere, triggering huge tsunamis and a hail of ash that would have destroyed the Minoan civilization, which then flourished on Crete. It was this cataclysm that was remembered more than 1,000 years later in Plato's time. He attributed it he attributed it to a civilization that he called Atlantis, little knowing how his brief description of a lost culture would resonate so strongly and often controversially through the ages. Ancient history, this is in The Guardian, lost city of Atlantis rises again to fuel a dangerous myth. For a story that was first told 2000, for a story that was first told 2,300 years ago, the myth of Atlantis was demonstrated a remarkable persistence over the millennia. Originally outlined by Plato, the tale of the rise of a great ancient civilization followed by its cataclysmic destruction has since generated myriad interpretations. Many versions have been intriguing and entertaining, but none have been as controversial as its most recent outing in the Netflix series Ancient Apocalypse. Presented by the author Graham Hancock, the, problem, the program argues that once sophisticated culture was destroyed by floods, triggered by a giant comet which crashed on Earth, the disaster that inspired the legend of it. The legend. Presented by the author Graham Hancock, the program argues that a once sophisticated culture was destroyed by floods triggered by a giant comet which crashed on Earth, a disaster that inspired the legend of Atlantis and is claimed. According to Hancock, survivors of the calamity spread around the world, which was then populated by simple hunter-gatherers, bringing them science, technology, agriculture and monumental architecture. We owe everything to these neo-godlike individuals, it is claimed. For good measure, Hancock, who has been promoting these ideas in his books for decades, argues that archaeologists have deliberately covered up the catastrophic vision of civilizations. Argues that archaeologists have deliberately covered up this catastrophic vision of civilization spread and accuses mainstream academia of its extremely defensive, arrogant, and patronizing attitudes. These stark claims have helped the series reach the top of viewing lists on both sides of the Atlantic. To the chagrin of archaeologists who, for their part, have denounced ancient apocalypse on the grounds that it provides little evidence to support its grandiose claims and for promoting conspiracy theories dressed up as science. Flint Dibble, an archaeologist at Cardiff University, described Hancock's basic thesis as flawed thinking. Archaeologists don't hate him as he claims it is simply that we strongly believe he is wrong, says Dibble in an article in the conversation last week. The confrontation is intriguing and raises many issues of which the most basic is the simple question, why has the story of Atlantis, compared with other ancient myths, maintained its popularity for so long and what is the essential attraction of the tale? For answers, we only have to look at the works of Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, H.P. Lovecraft, Conan Doyle, Brecht and a host of science fiction writers who have all found the myth an irresistible inspiration. As to the suggested location of this lost civilization, these have ranged from the Sahara to the Antarctic and countless places in between. Nor is Hancock the first to suggest the destruction of a once great civilization led to the flowering of culture elsewhere. In 1882, the maverick U.S. congressman and popular writer Ignatius Donnelly published Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, which argued that a highly complex, sophisticated culture had been wiped out by a flood 10,000 years ago and claimed that its survivors had spread around the world, teaching the rest of humanity the secrets of farming and architecture. Sounds familiar. Then there were the Nazis. Many swore by the idea a white Nordic superior race, people of the purest blood had come from Atlantis. As a result, Himmler set up an SS unit, the Anenobi, or Bureau of Ancestral Heritage, in 1935 to find out where people to find out where people from Atlantis had ended up after the deluge had destroyed their homeland. And that 
in part explains why the myth of an ancient lost civilization is so useful. It is a basic tale of a rise and fall that can be crowded and exploited for all sorts of causes. Plato meant his tale to be an allegory. Atlantis was destroyed by the gods who were grown angry with the hubris displayed by its inhabitants and so destroyed it. Don't get too big for your boots, in other words. But Hancock, who describes himself as a journalist presumably to, presumably to avoid being called a pseudoscientist, takes the story to a new controversial level in suggesting that survivors of such a deluge were the instigators of great works of other civilizations from Egypt, Mexico, and Turkey to Indonesia. As Gibble states, such claims reinforced white supremacist ideas. They strip indigenous people of their rich heritage and instead give credit to aliens or white people. In short, the series promotes the idea of race sites that are outdated, long, outdated and long since debunked. As to the likely site of the origin of Atlantis, the serious money goes on the destruction of the destruction of the Greek island of Santorini and its impact on Crete and puts the blame on volcanic eruptions, not errant comets, as Hancock argues. In addition, while ancient apocalypse suggests that destruction happened 12,000 years ago, most proponents of the alternative view believe it occurred around 1630 BC when the island of Santorini exploded in one of the most violent volcanic events in human history. 14 cubic miles of rock were hurled into the atmosphere, triggering huge tsunamis and a hail of ash that would have destroyed the Minoan civilization, which then flourished on Crete. It was this cataclysm that was remembered more than 1,000 years later in Plato's time. He attributed it he attributed it to a civilization that he called Atlantis, little knowing how his brief description of a lost culture would resonate so strongly and often controversially through the ages. And the next subject this week is the COVID fake vaccine. I say fake because it doesn't stop transmission or infection. This is in The Telegraph. Pfizer CEO wrapped by regulator for making misleading statements about children's vaccines. Dr. Albert Bueller used an interview with the BBC last December to claim that there is no doubt in my mind that the benefits completely are in favour of vaccinating youngsters aged 5 to 11 against COVID-19. He argued that COVID in schools is thriving, adding this is disturbing significantly the educational system. There are kids that will have severe symptoms. The interview was published on December the 2nd before the vaccine had been approved by Britain's medical regulator for this age group. Shortly after the article's publication, a complaint was submitted to the pharmaceutical watchdog, the Prescription Medicines Code of Practice Authority, by Us For Them, a parent campaign group, which was set up to promote the plight of children during the pandemic. The complaint alleged that Dr. Brawley's remarks about the children's vaccine were disgracefully misleading and extremely promotional in nature arguing that it breached several clauses of the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industries Code of Practice. There is simply no evidence that healthy school children in the UK are at significant risk from the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and to imply that they are is disgracefully misleading, they said. In September 2021, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation had advised against a mass rollout for children aged 12 to 15, saying the margin of benefit was considered too small and citing the low risk to healthy children from the virus. But less than a fortnight later, ministers, including Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer in Britain, psychopath, gave the green light for youngsters to be given a single dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech jab with the UK's chief medical officers arguing that this would help to keep schools open. Well, they didn't care about schools being open before that, did they? When they were saying that they should be closed. It was not until February 2022 that the JCVI ruled that children aged 5 to 11 could be offered the vaccine, fake vaccine, 
but Minister said the decision should be left up to parents. A code of practice panel convened by the PMCPA found that Pfizer had breached the code in a number of different ways, including by misleading the public, making unsubstantiated claims, and by failing to present information in a factual and balanced way. And Pfizer reportedly appealed against the findings. Well, this is the same Pfizer, lest we forget, who as documents which they tried to hide away for 75 years prove, knew about 158,000 possible adverse events before they sought approval for the COVID fake vaccine. And the same Pfizer who, an executive of Pfizer admitted recently that they never tested their COVID fake vaccine to see if it stopped transmission, which makes the vaccine passports useless and irrelevant. I talk about vaccines in general, in the new book over 52 pages. Cult gopher and psychopath Bill Gates has enormous influence on the pharmaceutical industry and had jaw-dropping influence in the COVID hoax as I show in the new book. Albert Borla should be in jail for the rest of his life along with the CEOs of all the major pharmaceutical companies, AstraZeneca, Moderna, all of them. They all need to go before Nuremberg-type trial to explain their actions in relation to the COVID fake vaccine and then go to jail for the rest of their life. The consequences of that fake vaccine we've seen since 2021 worldwide on an unprecedented scale. And I talk about some of those consequences in the new book. If these pharmaceutical companies have lied about the COVID fake vaccine, what else have they lied about? And how can you trust anything they ever say again? We need to stop trusting anyone and anything and start doing our own research and questioning everything. And the final subject this Chris week Whitty is, warns Britain faces prolonged period of excess deaths not caused by COVID due to collateral effects of lockdown. Britain will face a prolonged period of excess deaths due to the pandemic, but not from coronavirus itself, so Chris Whitty and the government's top virus advisor said today. England's chief medical officer has claimed the nation faces a rising death toll from heart disease and cancer cases due to pleas to protect the NHS. Knock-on effects of dealing with COVID, which saw thousands of routine treatments and appointments delayed, will also fuel a surge in excess deaths. The comments come from a technical report published on the pandemic advising health chiefs in the future on how to deal with similarly disruptive viral threats. The report was also authored by Sir Patrick Valance, who, with Sir Chris Whitty, became a household name during the pandemic, appearing next to then-Prime Minister Boris Johnson during tense Downing Street briefing to talk the nation through the crisis to promote the COVID script to the population more like. In one section, the team warned their successors that the extraordinary speed at which vaccines were developed could lull politicians in the future into a false sense of security. Britain had to rely on lockdowns, face masks, ventilation and hand washing before drugs were available and immunity levels rose. It says here, Ministers may not be so lucky in getting their hands on a jab with the next disease. Sir Chris and Sir Patrick said testing shortages in the critical months at the start of the outbreak hampered efforts to track the virus. This may well be a repeated problem in future pandemics, they wrote. Hundreds more Britons than expected are currently dying each week despite the worst of the pandemic being over. Experts say the collateral effects of COVID on treating cancer are to blame for a big proportion of those. Cancer checks effectively ground to a halt during the pandemic and patients faced delays for treatment as oncologists were put on COVID wars and patients were told to stay at home to protect the NHS. And thousands fewer people than expected have started cancer treatment since the pandemic began despite NHS performance recovering slightly this summer. 
Meanwhile, the never-ending crisis in urgent care is also contributing to an uptick in heart disease deaths, other leading voices have claimed. Some 30,000 people have died needlessly from heart problems since the start of the pandemic, the British Heart Foundation estimates. The report also touched on the controversial policy of discharge and potential COVID-positive residents into care homes during the pandemic. I'll come back to that point in a minute. Campaigners have stated the decision played a role in the deaths of thousands of elderly Britons. In the reports of Chris and Sir Patrick called dealing with care homes some of the most complex decisions of the pandemic. Officials tried to slow the spread of the virus without producing the staff shortages in care and leaving vulnerable residents isolated. Despite criticism of the policy, Sir Chris and Sir Patrick wrote that does not appear to have been the dominant way in which COVID entered most care homes. Their report also hints at tensions with politicians, describing a creative certainty at a time when scientists were still grappling with the, at the time, unknown virus. They wrote, policymakers are often comforted by being able to see a line on a graph reporting to show what will happen under a given policy, but modelling will never be able to precisely predict the future. The pair added, delays in drugs or vaccines being available, or the emergence of an, a variant with greater transmissibility, vaccine escape or leading to more severe disease could result in longer deployment of non-pharmaceutical intervention. The pair acknowledged the downsides of lockdowns and school closures, saying they were always a matter of the least bad option but they admitted the policy risked having lasting effects on children's education development and life chances. The shift to online GP appointments helped to reduce transmission, but a reluctance to see a doctor among some patients resulted in significant unmet need, which could lead to further deaths and illness. There is little doubt that delays in presentation, reductions in secondary prevention, such as statins and antihypertensives, postponement of elective and semi-elective care and screening, would have led to later and more severe presentation of non-COVID illness, they wrote. They go on to say that the combined effect of this would likely lead to a prolonged period of non-COVID excess mortality and morbidity after the worst period of the pandemic is over. The article continues, COVID famously led to the cancellation of thousands of elective operations and diagnostic tests due to how the virus disrupted the health system. The public was told to help protect the NHS, and while medics con consistently urged people to come forward if they had worrying symptoms, many stayed away. Some did so out of not wanting to take resources or time from the health service, which at the time was facing the prospect of a wave of COVID admissions. Others stayed away out of fear that going to hospital or to their GP could lead to them catching the virus. The NHS has still failed to recover from the pandemic. Official figures show 7.1 million people in England waiting for routine hospital treatment, such as hip and knee operations, by the end of September, the latest available data. This figure also includes more than 400,000 people who have been waiting for over a year, often in pain and discomfort. NHS cancer care, which has struggled to reach targets for years, has further floundered to a record low post-pandemic. The latest data shows just 60.5% of patients started cancer treatment within two months of being referred for chemotherapy or radiotherapy. The figure is down from 61.9% one month earlier and is the lowest ever recorded in records going back to October 2009. The NHS states 85% of patients should start treatment within this time frame. Poor NHS performance comes as the health service prepares for a grim winter over fears of a triple-demic of COVID, flu and other seasonal infections exacerbating health service delays. Well, who was instrumental in lockdown policy as Chief Medical Officer? Chris Whitty. Who scared people into not going to hospital, even though, as citizen journalists proved at the time, hospitals were empty? Chris Whitty. 
who oversaw the rollout of the COVID fake vaccine and continues to do so, even with all the data and evidence showing that it is a disaster for health, who overruled the JCVI to roll out the COVID fake vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds with its enormous potential to devastate their health and end their life on the basis of allowing them to go to school while in 2020 arguing that school should be closed. Chris Whitty. And who is now saying that Britain could face a prolonged period of excess deaths not caused by COVID due to collateral effects of lockdown? Chris Whitty. Chris Whitty must go to jail for the rest of his life for crimes against humanity, along with his mates, Valance, Hancock and Johnson, and many others. How many people have already died because they couldn't get treatment, examination and consultation because of COVID policies for which Chris Whitty was fundamentally responsible? And there's another article here about the COVID vaccine. This is on the Daily Exposed website, which has done some great work pointing out the devastation of the COVID fake vaccine and the truth about the figures we were given during the COVID era and often using official government data to do so. Uh, this is the article. Billions of lives could be in danger due to COVID vaccines, Japanese professor says, or fake vaccines as I would say. At a press conference for bereaved families held on 25th of November, Dr. Masanori Fukushima, professor emeritus at Kyoto University, warned about COVID injection harms. And he is a real doctor, I've, I've checked. You can see a five-minute clip of the speech that he gave in the article, but there's a link to the full two-hour meeting. Uh, Professor Fukushima said, Given the wide range of adverse events, billions of lives can ultimately be in danger. You spend trillions of yen importing and inciting the population to have it. In professional magazines, the misunderstandings come to light, and now it is understood how dangerous it is. Dr. Masanori Fukushima has published several articles on biomedical research and translation of medicine, and as well as being Professor Emeritus at Kyoto University, works in the Translational Research Informatics Center Foundation for Biomedical Research and Innovation in Kobe, Japan. He has also written over 200 papers, which have been cited over 7,000 times. With comprehensive experience spanning over the past three decades as a medical oncologist at Aichi Cancer Center and Kyoto University Hospital, Dr. Fukushima has engaged in the practice and dissemination of standard cancer treatment and reform of Japan's medical care system and is active to date, contributing to building up the infrastructure of clinical trials focusing on translational research. Wake Up tweeted another clip from the press conference, a husband whose wife was killed by a COVID vaccine who said, how many people are you guys going to kill? We the people are neither toys nor guinea pigs. The conference was organized by Kazuhisa Yukawa with a view to giving family members of those who have died post-vaccination and those who have suffered discrimination due to vaccine mandates a chance to tell their stories and to offer them guidance and support. The purpose of the conference, Yukawa stated on his website, was to Provide advice to vaccine-injured people to prepare the paperwork and the procedures to be followed for national and local governments. Not that they'll do much with it. Examination and consultation with doctors. Litigation support for those who have been discriminated against due to vaccinations. And support regarding class action suits for the vaccine-injured and bereaved families. Although lawsuits are irrelevant to the pharmaceutical companies who have immunity from liability. That's where the real immunity lies, not in the vaccine, but in the liability. 
the website states that human rights abuses due to vaccines are occurring, for example, unvaccinated people are not allowed to visit nursing homes or hospitals, are not admitted to hospitals for treatment, and are discriminated against at work. And that's the very same COVID fake vaccine which Chris Whitty was, as chief medical officer of Britain, fundamentally responsible for inflicting on the British population with all the devastation for people in Britain already. We really do live in a psychopath's playground, and it's about time we address that. So, that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.